this is the most important topic on earth because yeah. if we don't get this right, there's nothing left for us. Nothing. Now, that is George Monbiot. George is one of Britain's finest writers. He's one of the bravest as well, and he writes about climate. He's written about rewilding. He's written Regenesis, the book that we're talking about today, which is about the future of farming. It's a weekly column with The Guardian, and that book, Feral, that I just mentioned, inspired a rewilding movement in the UK, which now has a target of rewilding about 30% of Britain's land by 2030, which, hey, if they do it, that'll be very good, because as cool as carbon capture sounds, nothing absorbs more carbon than wild, unfucked with land. Now, I'm quite a big fan of nature nowadays. Ever since I moved out of London, I've been trying to make the most of what's around me in Dorset. And I love nature, and I can't help it. I know that not everyone does, but if you want to give it a go, you know, just give it a try, get out in nature and see if you think that, you know, maybe it's worth protecting. Now, I've I've read about farming before. George's book, Regenesis, isn't the first book that I've read that has mentioned it but it is the first book that solely focuses on it a book called dark emu which is about the colonizers heading to australia speaks about how you know colonial farmers sucked basically they couldn't work out how to use the land and it destroyed a lot of the environment that also happened in colombia with the spanish colonizers uh, read about that in the invention of nature which is a book about a guy called alexander von humboldt in I think it was in the early 1800s he was in Colombia and he wrote back to the Spanish colonizers saying look your farming practices are destroying the land and unsurprisingly they didn't really give a shit right so that's a shame now George's book Regenesis blew my mind which isn't a particularly rare occurrence for me because I like to read books that blow my mind but understanding just how complex soil is has completely changed the way that I look at the ground beneath my feet because I thought it was just mud. I thought mud was just an annoyance, and I thought it was just a bit shit. But it turns out, it is a living organism, which is mental. So, I hope you enjoy this podcast. Before we get going with it, I do have to run through the sponsors of this show. Now, just a quick note on sponsors. All of the information is always going to be in the description of the episode, but I will only ever work with brands that I believe in, use, and think are good, and not evil, massive corporations. So, with that in mind... This podcast is sponsored by Athletic Greens. Now, I started taking Athletic Greens about two and a half years ago because basically it's an easy way to get your nutrients in. So just one scoop mix of water that I take on an empty stomach in the morning. It's got 75 high-quality vitamins, minerals, whole food source, superfoods, probiotic, and adaptogens. And that'll help you start your day right. I don't know about you, but I'd prefer to eat Maltesers for my breakfast. But just having one scoop of Athletic Greens helps me feel less guilty about my diet. Now, apart from just being good for your gut, they care about people and the planet. They're a carbon-neutral business. They fed over 1.2 million hungry children in the US in 2020, which is, you know, more than I did. And they're constantly making the product better. You can spend as little as £2.60 a day on your all-in-one supplement. Now, to make it easy, Athletic Greens is giving you, a Need to Read listeners, a free one-year supply of immune-supporting vitamin D, five free travel packs to take wherever the hell you want to go traveling. That's all with your first purchase. You also get a nice bottle as well. And all you have to do is head to athleticgreens.com forward slash a need to read. That is athleticgreens.com forward slash a need to read, where you can take ownership of your health and pick up the ultimate daily nutritional insurance. 
Now, as well as that, you'll probably all be aware that the need to read is sponsored by BetterHelp. You might not be aware, though, that therapy is cool now. Sorting out your emotional distress and taking care of your mental anguish is so in. Now, I know people like to get Instagram therapy, but, you know, here's the thing about Instagram therapy. It sucks. Uh, you can actually get your own real licensed therapist or better help for less than what it would cost you for standard face-to-face counselling. So if you're on your fence, just let me push you to the other side towards betterhelp.com forward slash a need to read where you, as a need to read listener, will get 10% off your first month and you get matched with a therapist within 48 hours, which is pretty rapid. Now, details for both of those companies in the description of this show. I only work with people who I'm confident will improve your life, so that's my word. You've got it, I promise you. Now, very soon you're going to be listening to this podcast, but before you do, I just want to say, if you enjoy it, please do share it, because it really helps. George, welcome to A Need to Read. Thank you so much for joining me today. Um, I've just come off the back of a of a cram session with Regenesis, and usually when I read books quick, I, I don't enjoy it so much. But you're you're a beautiful writer, and like a, the story is captivating and has completely changed the way that I look at the world. So thank you for writing the book. Oh, thanks very much, Ed. So one of the most mind blowing things for me about Regenesis is getting a basic understanding for me because i'm not going to remember all of it of just how complex soil is because for most people it's just mud under the ground it's annoying on their shoes what is it about soil that most people don't understand well the first thing is that soil is an ecosystem and it's an ecosystem as abundant and diverse as any rainforest or coral reef secondly it's not just an ecosystem, it's actually a biological structure. It's built by the creatures that inhabit it. So it's like a coral reef in that respect, but a lot more complex and built by a much wider range of creatures interacting. Um, And if it weren't for the organisms in the soil, from bacteria to fungi to um, tiny little scuttling creatures we call microarthropods, to ants, to worms, and all the rest of it, it just would not be there. If, if, if it were what we assumed it was, which is just a, like an undifferentiated mass of stuff, you know, minerals and organic matter, it would just be swept off the land with the first major storm because mm. it wouldn't have any structural resilience. But what the creatures in the soil, which, which kind of are the soil, have done is to build these structures, which are fractally scaled, which means that at any level of magnification, they've got the same structure. And that makes them very strong, very resilient. It means that the soil stays on the land. And and, and at the micro level, the bacteria use the carbon in the soil as cement. They turn it into polymers, which they stick all the little mineral particles together with and create little capsules in which they live, which have almost magical properties. Even when the soil is air dried, inside those capsules is 98% humidity. And then those little capsules or aggregates are turned into bigger ones by the little scuttling creatures. And then those are turned into bigger ones still by the giants of the soil, like ants and worms. Um, and, and you create this, this um, tremendously complex, but consistently um, um, uh, structured stuff, which 
um, enables it to withstand an incredible range of shocks. And you really have to hurt soil for it to collapse. But unfortunately, because it's a complex system, it does have tipping points. It does have thresholds beyond which it collapses. And we've hammered it in many parts of the world so hard that collapse is has either happened already in the form of dust bowls, and there have been many in history and quite a few recently, um, and is likely to get much worse unless we change our practice. Okay. And say for most people listening to this, they'll be in the United Kingdom. So the soil we have, we've been quite lucky to have the soil that we had right throughout history. It was yeah. quite fertile and resilient soil. What What's the case in the UK from yeah. where you've been and had a look? Yeah, so you, you'd think, you know, we were in, in a really great place because we've got a temperate climate, or at least we used to. Um, and we've got these, as you say, very robust and often very deep soils, very good soil here. But it's almost as if we're perversely determined to destroy this good fortune. Mm. So um, there are all kinds of practice now which could not be better designed for trashing the soil. And, and one of them is growing maize. Corn is, looks like sweet corn. People assume that they're sweet corn fields, primarily either to feed to dairy cows or, or even more importantly now to put into anaerobic digesters to make biogas which is an incredibly wasteful use of some of the best land in Britain. We're using our best arable land to grow crops just to make gas out of, turning food in, into fuel. And the trouble with maize is it's harvested very late. The rows are widely spaced. And so um, there's seldom time to get another crop in before wind, winter. And so then the soil remains exposed through the winter and gets stripped off the land and some of your um, listeners might have seen these shocking videos of like rivers running red of soil just pouring out of fields and as often as not those are maize fields uh, another crop which is really damaging in that respect is potatoes um, because potatoes have to be rowed up so you you sort of um, pull all the soil up into ridges and that makes it very vulnerable to being swept away and again potatoes now are being grown to stick into anaerobic digesters and to make biogas it, uh, or for that matter to make bioplastic which is supposed to be this great alternative to to fossil plastic but actually when you consider the full life cycle is probably even worse because mm. of the enormous damage required to grow it um the damage to the soil plus all the fossil fuel used um, and the pesticides herbicides the fertilizers the rest of it you put all that together no one's actually done a study on the whole chain as far as i can see but from um the pieces i've i can assemble it's almost certainly the case that it's more damaging than fossil plastic and so all this stuff oh look we got this this cornstarch plastic or this potato starch plastic it, it's it's a disaster just another cocktail of shit from big business. From, yeah, right? yeah, yeah, really. No, it, re it really is. It's like, it's just a way of reassuring ourselves that we're doing the right thing. But actually, you know, you have to take a far more systemic approach to the problem. And with farming, how, how long have you been looking into that? Because you've, you've spanned across loads of environmental topics. Mm -hmm. And I was reading, um, this can't be happening. I've, I've read a couple of the um, essays, would you call them in there? Yeah, yeah, the essays in there, um, and you obviously understand a a, a lot about the environment. Um, 
why was soil the the thing that you honed in on for this book? Well, so so I've been really uh, farming. Sorry, in farming. Soil. Yeah, yeah. No, I've been really interested in farming ever since I was a teenager and worked on an intensive pig farm. Um, and and uh, yeah, I don't I mind. In fact, I quite enjoy heavy physical work, and um, I sort of like that aspect of it. But it was it was just a really shocking place. I mean, it wasn't like a bad intensive pig farm. But intensive pig farms are places of horror. They're, they're really, really appalling places, just disgusting and, and unbelievably cruel to these highly intelligent animals. What goes on? And, like what, sorry, what was like, the, the most like, shocking? Well, uh, so we had, um, we had a big freeze. I mean, there were a lot of shocking things, but uh, there was a big freeze while, while I was there. And, um, and we had to concentrate entirely on feeding all these pigs by hand because the feed pipes froze. And so you know, it was 12 hours a day just running with buckets of um, of skim milk and and bran. Um, and your arms were almost falling off by the end of it. You know, it was very, very hard work. But after two weeks of that, finally we had a thaw, pipes unblocked, and we could attend to everything else. And we found there were just dead pigs everywhere. I mean, embedded in a sea of shit. And, okay, you know, that things had gone wrong. But, you know, it was really bad. And it was my job as the most junior farmhand to pop the pigs because they're all going up with gases, right? And and there were these sows stuck in these farrowing sheds, dead sows, which had completely bloated up to fill, almost fill the shed. And so I had to, to get in and to get to the point, which is in under the front armpit, under the armpit, to... Um, to, to put the blade in to pop them i had to climb on top of the pig which by then you know they were like giant water beds and they were green and black and and stank and then you'd you'd thrust the blade in and it just would explode all over you you get sort of the wow. sort of revolting sort of fountain of rotten pig organs all, all over oh, you God. and yeah i got a very strong stomach which is just as well yeah. but and then you would chain up the the legs of the pig to try and pull this deflated pig out of the shed, and often than not, it would just split in half as you did so. And then I had to go in with a shovel and dig dig the rest of it out. And oh, I mean, it, it's it was a real education, you know. It was a real education. But you know, above all, what shocked me was just these you know these really intelligent animals crammed together, fighting a lot of the time because. You know, they're quite territorial mm. um, uh, with no stimulation, you know, just in this horrendous boredom. It was just like being kept in a maximum security prison or something and mm -hmm. just seeing them suffer. And there were two thoughts which just constantly occurred to me. And the first was, uh, this isn't what they told me farming was about. Because, you know, like everyone in this country has brought up with this bucolic image of farming, you know, particularly the livestock farm. You know, you've got your rosy cheek farmer and you've got your one horse and one cow and one pig and one cat and they're all talking yeah. to each other and stuff. Now, I wasn't so naive that I really thought it was like that, but I thought it was maybe something like that. And this, yeah. it could not have been more different. You know, in those children's books, they create the impression that the livestock farm is a place of comfort and safety. And it, it's a place of revolting horror. But the other thing which occurred to me again and again was, why is this legal? You know, mm. if these were dogs, if you're we doing that to dogs, you would be thrown into prison for a long time. And yet it's just perfectly acceptable to do it to an animal which is even more intelligent than a dog. 
on an enormous scale, you know, a truly hu huge scale. Yeah. You know, millions of these pigs in, in, in this country. And it's it's like, this, this is such a blind spot. This is such a weird thing that yeah. we tolerate this and celebrate this and talk, oh, local pork sausages. Isn't this a wonderful thing, a great British product? And you think, well, have you thought about what's in them? Yeah. Well, hopefully not any of the ones that you were pulling in half. Oh, Jesus. Yeah, God. I get it. Yeah. it's the the ethics of like animal ab abuse and and murder doesn't really necessarily co come into the book so much as more of like the environmental impact from yeah um what what farming does to the environment yeah, so, there's, so, there's a reason for that in that yeah you know the, the the animal welfare issue is the familiar issue you know yeah. and that's what people would expect me to write about because that's what they know but i'm really amazed to discover that even a lot of people who know a lot about animal welfare and are very concerned about it know almost nothing about the environmental impacts that's the thing which has been greatly neglected yeah so so what the farms doing then that that's causing environmental destruction what, what what's well, being put to use so look, we, we depend on farming you know at the moment we're totally dependent on farming for our survival um but and it's an uncomfortable truth you know it's not one that um we really want to admit to farming is also the worst thing we've ever done to the planet mm. um by a very long way i mean it's the greatest cause of habitat destruction the greatest cause of of wildlife loss the greatest cause of extinction, greatest cause of soil degradation, the greatest cause of fresh water use, one of the greatest causes of climate breakdown, water pollution, of air pollution. Um, and and yet we sort of exclude it from our concerns. We'll point to the fossil fuel industry, we'll point to the chemical industry, these other nasty industries that we don't like, but we just pretend that farming's not happening or not having any impact. Um, the biggest impact of all that farming has is the sheer amount of land it uses because every hectare of land that you use for an extractive industry is a hectare that can't support wild ecosystems like forests, like wetlands, like savannas, like natural grasslands and the rest. And the great majority of the world's species depend on natural ecosystems. In fact, the earth system as a whole depends on natural ecosystems. If those aren't functioning, if there aren't enough of them, earth systems will collapse and they'll take us with them you know there's no future for us at all if we don't protect these earth systems and yet the greatest threat to them is farming because of the sheer amount of land it occupies now you know we all hate urban sprawl and so we should it's a blight but the entire urban footprint of humanity all the land we use for our homes and our infrastructure amounts to one percent of the land surface of the planet farming 38 percent of the land surface of the planet and most of the rest of the planet is um, either uninhabitable it's like desert it's ice caps and stuff or it's forested or it's protected in some way but you know even those protected areas now are being attacked by the expansion of farming yeah. um, and so it's pretty well all the land which can be occupied by farming is being occupied by farming and even that then they're pushing the envelope and because of that you know, that's what puts the ecological survival of the planet at risk above anything else. 
And we don't want to know this. We don't want to see it. We don't want to talk about it because it just cuts too deep. It's too close to the way we identify ourselves. We identify very strongly with farming, much more so than we do with industry. Yeah, definitely. I, like, I'm from Dorset, so I'm I'm down down south, and it's a farming county, right? There's, there's lots and lots of land used for farming here, and I, I grew up in a village, like surrounded by chicken shit. Um, had like a sheep come into my garden. I was really really in the country, yeah. and since reading your book i now want to come and go and ask them like hey what fertilizer is using are you letting that run into the river stour because my my favorite rope swing in dorset is on the river stour when the heat wave came there was just algae laying on top of the water the weir had kind of run dry um in in this country i mean it's interesting because you know we quite rightly you know we've become very upset about what the water companies are doing and so we Mm. should i mean it's just disgusting you know pouring raw shit into our rivers and into our sea but it remains the case that that's only the second biggest cause of pollution of our rivers. The biggest cause in the UK is farming and particularly intensive livestock farms, mm. which are just devastating to rivers. You know, and they're wiping out rivers all over the place because there's just more nutrients than the land can absorb being released, even if farmers spread them on the land rather than just doing what some of them do, which is to pump them straight in the river. Even if they spread them on the land, it has the same effect. Because the yeah. land can't absorb it, and the next rainfall just washes it straight off into the river. And, and if I understand that correctly, then so like something like maize that we spoke about at the start of the conversation, if that only you have like one yield a year from that, mm-hmm. for the rest of that year, when the rainwater comes, it flows off. Maybe they've used chicken mm-hmm. shit as their their manure, yeah. um, or human sludge, uh, which yeah. I was horrified to find out that then runs off and will make its way into rivers attacking the ecosystems in there and essentially just like strangling life yeah no that's exactly right um and the um and and that has killed more rivers or more river life in this country even than the disgusting behavior of the water companies and it's far less of a political issue i mean so liz trust made me into a vegan Actually, she turned me big. <laughs> um, and, and, and the reason was that when she was environment secretary and she was the most awful environment secretary, I, I went down to not far from where you are. It was actually in East Devon. Um, mm. in, um, I, I went to the, explore the River Cone, which mm. is meant to be a really beautiful river full of, like, it's got salmon, it's got brook lampreys, it's got otters, it's got kingfishers you know everything i mean it's just meant to be this really rich place Mm. and i could smell it from 50 meters away and when i turned up on its bank there was nothing in there except sewage fungus it was just dead for miles Mm. and i was like oh you know what's gone on here some some horrendous disaster i followed it upstream and found a pipe um just pouring even though it was a dry day it was just pouring raw sludge straight into this river and i followed the pipe up the hill and and found that it was draining these two slurry lagoons um from an intensive dairy farm and and it was it had obviously been deliberately built to just channel the the excess shit straight into the river and when i looked at google earth i i found that they're double the size of the dairy unit, but the slurry lagoons were the same size. They hadn't bothered making bigger slurry lagoons. And why bother if you can just pour it straight into the river instead? 
So it was like one of the worst cases of deliberate pollution you could ever imagine. And here I was about the most empowered complainant you could ever imagine because I got a Guardian column and I wrote it up in the Guardian and I did photos of it all and stuff. And I phoned the Environment Agency's pollution hotline like a good citizen should and yeah. reported this. And they said, oh, thanks very much, sir. Yes, sounds very serious, sir. And they went out and um, and investigated it. And two weeks later, I phoned them up and said, so um, what are you going to do? And they said, oh, we decided not to enforce, sir, because it's not a serious incident. I said, what do you mean it's not a serious incident? They've killed the whole river. And they said, well, so we found no evidence of a fish kill. So, of course, you found no evidence of a fish kill. This has been running for six months. There are no fish left to kill. Why can't you see that? Thanks very much, sir. Goodbye. So I wrote that up. And I had two whistleblowers from the Environment Agency in, in, independently got in touch with me and We've been told from the top, in other words, the Secretary of State, not to enforce against dairy farms. And that was the point at which I thought, right, OK, if they're not going to regulate this industry, I'm not eating its products anymore. Yeah. And what year was that? Oh, I think it was, was it 2015, 2016? I, I could look it up. Um, yeah. It wouldn't be hard to find. Oh, yeah, no, that's but all right. It was when Trust was, was Environment Secretary. Oh. And and I was already like teetering on the brink, you know, I was becoming more and more aware of the environmental impacts, but that's what did it for me. And it was, I mean, it was, it was because it was so clear cut. It was just so shocking, you know, and I was just mystified until these whistleblowers got in touch. So why they wouldn't enforce against it. And then I found out and, you know, the agricultural lobby is it, it, ridiculously strong in this country. Yeah. So the, the environment, um, department office in central london right is literally next door to the national farmers union uh, which is its major lobby group and every time every time there's um, a new secretary of state just like the current one we got this guy Rennell, every time there's a new secretary of state the first port of call is national farmers union and basically tell us what you want and the national farmers union says oh yeah we want to rescind the ban on neonicotinoid pesticides we want to trash the soil framework directive we want to kill the badgers you know it's just uh, every single bad policy you can imagine has been pursued by the national farmers union it's it's the most destructive industrial lobby group in britain and yet the um, you know, the, 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 the Secretary of State, every time, I mean, although Liz Truss was the worst, yeah. but every time they just cow, kowtow to them. And, you know, DEFRA is the name of the department, and it should stand for the Department for Environment, um, Farming and Rural Affairs, but it actually stands for doing everything farmers' representatives ask. <laughs> They they made that a bit too easy for you, Georgia. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, so so obviously things at the moment are pretty catastrophic, and and we kind of look like we're face to face with our impending doom. Um, farming systems throughout the world. I know we focus so much on on the UK, but from my understanding, like farming in uh, South Asia affects rainfall in parts of of africa and these these links yes. happen to weather systems all, all over the world mm. um where is there any light at the end of the tunnel where where are farmers doing okay yeah so so look, I, I mean i don't want to you know in complaining about the industry about farming mm. you know i'm not out to diss all farmers by any means no. and there's a lot who are trying really hard to turn things around sort them out and, and what i was looking for throughout was 
farmers who manage to maintain high yields with low impacts right mm. because we need high yields you know if we uh, i mean the problem with low low yield farming is first of all that it can't feed everyone and secondly that it uses an awful lot of land you know by definition mm. if it's low yield extensive farming it uses more land to produce a given amount of food and that's all land which can otherwise be covered in wild ecosystem yeah. so there's a huge ecological opportunity cost also a huge carbon opportunity cost because there's no case i know of where a farmed ecosystem a farm system stores more carbon than a wild yeah. than the wild one that it's displaced despite all the bullshit on this issue i mean there's just a whole sort of climate denying uh, pseudoscience based around yeah. oh, ranching sequesters carbon it's just it's just total nonsense but a lot of people have fallen for it unfortunately so um so you've got this huge ecological opportunity cost, this huge carbon opportunity cost of low yield farming. So it has to be high yield, but you know we can't afford to get those high yields by just slapping on the pesticide, slapping on the fertilizer, plowing the soil to the point at which it collapses, because then there's going to be no yields in future. You know we're going to lose everything if we do that, and all the rest of much of the rest of life on Earth. And so. Um, that's the holy grail the high yield yeah. high yield low impact and there are not you know i'm not blaming farmers for this because you know they're often under very tight market conditions yeah. it's a very difficult thing to do but it's vanishingly rare to find cases of, of that where you know those two things come together but where we do find them we should celebrate them and we should yeah. pour research and development money in to find out how to replicate this so a, a classic example um, is a grower I work with um, in South Oxfordshire called Ian Tollhurst or Tolly, yeah. who has, I mean, it, it's quite amazing what he's done. He, he, he sort of understood soil ecology way ahead of the science in some ways. You know, he, he sort of anticipated our new understanding of how the soil works by several decades mm. and realized that, to a very great extent, the fertility of the soil depends on the mediation of bacteria and fungi yeah. and about plants' relationship with them. And he just has spent 34 years experimenting with tweaking that relationship, and he hit the sweet spot. He found a way of stimulating that bacterial and fungal growth so that they lock up the nutrients when they're not needed, which is absolutely essential because otherwise those nutrients leach away through your soil. And they release them to the plants just when they are needed, but only when they are needed. And by doing this with a series of very clever, so it's a low tech, but quite complicated techniques, mm -hmm. he's managed to raise the fertility of his soil and raise his yields of vegetables until they've hit the lower bound of, of what conventional growers produce on a much better soil than his yeah. without any fertilizer or any manure at all it, it it seems like a miracle but yeah you know, the evidence is there you can show this is what he's done and and quite a lot of other growers now are trying to copy it some have succeeded yeah. and doing really well but others haven't and we don't know why you know why is it what why can this be replicated by some people not by others is it because of yeah. the soil type is it because of the way they're doing it are they missing something and we just don't know so we need urgently to research this to find out because if if everyone can grow like 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 Tolly can, 
then we've solved a very big part of the problem. Yeah. And like if if we did move most of the UK farms like from kind of like said, right, that land should not be used for livestock, shouldn't be abusing that land in in that way anymore. What would the land in, in the UK look like? What what would yeah. what so, happen? So can I just anticipate that get to that answer? Have you, have yeah, you yeah, just yeah. um I'm taking you so um I mean I I I think by far and away the biggest problem the world faces is animal agriculture when it comes to farming. You know, it's by far and away the component of farming that is most damaging. Yeah. In terms of land use, the great majority of land is devoted to growing food for livestock rather than directly for humans. When you use arable land for that purpose, it's extremely wasteful because the crops which we could eat instead have to be passed through another animal and you lose most of the nutritional value in doing so. Um, on pasture, it's even worse because you need so much land to mm. produce a given amount of food. And as a result of that and various other impacts it has, and this people find it really shocking when I say this, but sorry, this is what the science shows, the most damaging of all farm products is organic pasture-fed beef and lamb. Those are the worst possible things to eat. And all these foodies and celebrity chefs and said, oh, eat organic pasture-fed beef and lamb. And, and actually, no, that is the most terrible thing you can do. And if everybody tried to do that, you know, if that became um, um, a, a sort of generalised product that everybody ate, well, we'd need several planets and there'd yeah. be no space for wild ecosystems at all. So... Um, there's um um so we, we urgently need substitutes for animal products and so far they haven't been so great you know a lot yeah. of the plant substitutes are a bit disappointing but like the cavalry the nick of time we've got this whole new approach being developed um and is very close now to commercialization it's called precision fermentation which is basically an advanced form of brewing brewing up microbes to produce a very protein rich flour about 65 percent protein 30 percent fat or so our like bread flour yeah yeah it's just it's like it's it um the uh, i went to see this um the work of this company solar foods in helsinki where the uh the flour which comes out at the end is it sort of feels like bread flour but it's a sort of golden yellow color because it's got beta carotene in but it's very very high in protein in fact i asked them to make me a pancake I wanted to be the first person outside the lab to eat a pancake made from it, small flip for man. Um, but in order to make that pancake, we had to dilute it with wheat flour because normally, you know, you start with your wheat flour, you add your protein and fat, right, um, oh, to raise course. raise the level. But if we'd just cooked with this, this flour, we would have made an omelette rather than a pancake. <laughs> um, and it tasted just like a pancake. I mean, it was delicious. It wow. was great. And but you can use it to make almost anything far more easily than you can from plant compounds with far less processing, far less extra ingredients and the rest of it. But also not just to substitute what we've already got, but to make a whole range of protein rich stuff, which yeah. we can't even conceive of any more than the first people to domesticate a wild cow. We're thinking about camembert, right, is, is this potential enormous revolution in our cuisine. But yeah. with a tiny fraction of the land area, a tiny fraction of the water use, a tiny fraction of the fertilizer use, these bacteria in Helsinki, they, they feed on hydrogen. That's the food, that's their food source. That's the feedstock going into the process. It's hydrogen, which is produced by this company from solar power, okay. electrolysis of water. And 
they use a hydrogen in a similar way that a plant uses sunlight, except it's a far more efficient process than photosynthesis. And so you and and the other amazing thing about this is you could do it anywhere in the world. You know, there's a lot of countries now which are really struggling because they're highly import dependent. They don't have enough fertile land. They don't have enough water to feed their own people. They often aren't, aren't rich. And so buying food on the international market is very expensive, but it's also becoming more and more fragile, those, those trading chains. And they're at the end of the chain with soft currencies waiting for the ship to arrive. And it's getting more and more tenuous, you know, and already this year because of, really the blockage of just one route, which is the grain coming out of Ukraine, yeah. um, we're, we're seeing a massive exacerbation of starvation. Um, had that coincided, incidentally, with that um, container ship getting stuck ac- get across the Suez Canal last year, yeah. those two things had come together, then you know it would have been much, much worse. But shelves would have just emptied like that because you know two major shipping routes were just, were just shut off. And so... Um, and, and so this enables people who, you know, who've got lots of sunlight, but not much else. And sunlight is what you need if you want to make hydrogen through solar power. It, it enables them to have this completely autonomous food production, even in places which are really hostile to farming. Yeah. So I think we can, you know, we could very quickly get good substitutes for animal products and not just animal products, but also for soy, for palm oil, for coconut, for a lot of the really damaging plant products that we grow um, with a really, really tiny fraction of the environmental impact. And then to get to your question, roundabout right, we could then rewild vast tracts of the planet's surface, huge areas which are now used particularly for pasture because that's the great majority of the world's um, farmland is pasture. It's a tremendously wasteful way of, 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 of producing food. Those could be used to allow the rainforest to come back and allow the savannas to come back, the wetlands and the rest of it. And not only could that stop the sixth great extinction, and, and, and allow the revival of ecosystems, but it could also draw down a great deal of the carbon dioxide that we've already released into the atmosphere. Not all of it. I mean, we also need urgently to decarbonize our own economies, but, but we, we know that even if we do that almost instantly, the overshoot will still commit us to certainly 1.5 and, and probably two degrees of global heating, which is a disastrous level. Um, and if we want to stop that, we have to draw down some of the CO2 we've already released as well. And by far, the cheapest, the most effective and the most benign way of doing that is the restoration of ecosystems. Yeah, it's not it's not as sexy as getting people to Mars, is it? I guess that's, no, that's the problem. No, but it's so much, it's so much it's more important and yeah. cheaper. And, and, and the thing is that, you, you know, you're solving a whole lot of problems all at once. Yeah. And this is why I think that this... A relatively simple technology, precision fermentation. You know, it's it's it was developed by NASA in the 1960s, but it's not rocket science. It's, it is yeah. basically just a sort of a fancy form of brewing. Why I think it is the most important environmental technology ever developed. Wow. And and we should, uh, you know, I mean, there are dangers. There's dangers of corporate concentration, just like in in the rest of the food chain at the moment. You know, and so we should get in there and say. We want this to be distributed. We want this to be owned um, by the people in general. It should be open source. Yeah. Small and medium businesses can use it and the rest of it. There could be a microbrewery on the edge of every town, you yeah. know, producing products 
designed for the local market. You know, that would be fantastic. Um, but, you know, we've got to demand that. And instead of just saying, oh, we don't like the technology, it's new, it's it's microbes, you know, yeah. um, rather than saying, yeah, let's let's make sure this technology works for us. Yeah. And, and we should be getting behind it, but with those caveats that, you know, it's got to belong to the people. Yeah, for sure. I think as long as they can get like Heston Blumenthal on on mm. top of like product design, I think they'd have a, have a pretty good chance. Yeah, uh, I mean that's what we need. We need those those creators, someone... those innovative chefs. Yeah, to yeah. come along and say what what can you do with this? And and I mean you could do so much with it because basically, so you know what humans want more than anything is protein. Yeah, you know, and when you've got this incredibly protein rich flour, which even as it as it comes off the roller. It, it smells like scrambled egg. It smells really tasty, really rich mm. because, you know, we're, we're really drawn to protein. We've got this yeah. big attraction to it. And, and so from that, I mean, there's almost nothing you can't make. You know, it's not difficult. And you've got this sort of really concentrated source of the protein. Um, that thing's quite promising then in, in that sense, especially with, especially with that technology. Um, I, I hate to ask you, but we're, we're coming to the end of, of the podcast. If, we do not make any changes if if we continue this environmental destruction if if the rivers keep dying mm. if these flipping points are passed what what is it going to look like well do they so the other day i was down again not far from where you are i'm okay. on the coast at budley salterton mm. looking at the cliffs there so the most terrifying cliffs on earth not because yeah. they're particularly high or particularly dangerous or anything that you don't want to stand under them but because it's a post-extinction landscape perfectly preserved, this horrifying red desert, which is you can see the layers in the sand, you can see the, the sort of stony desert, and then you've got the rig, the, the desert surface with the wind-carved pebbles there, and then above that, the sand dunes, which have been carved by the wind into sort of these sort of screaming skull-type shapes. Yeah. It's really scary. But that is... Those are the deposits which were laid down immediately after the Permo-Triassic extinction, where 90% of life was wiped out completely, caused by massive volcanic eruptions in that case, which released a whole load of carbon dioxide and acid rain at the same time. And what seems to have happened is that there was a whole domino effect. One yeah. ecosystem goes down, it pulls down the other, it pulls down the next, pulls down the next, until basically Earth systems have collapsed. And only a very few life forms and hardly any large ones came out the other side of that. And then eventually, tens of millions of years later, they proliferated into the diversity we saw in the Jurassic, but it took all that time. Mm. And most of the world was basically red desert in that time. And it was like, this is the past, but it could also be the future. Yeah, that's a that's a harrowing tale. I, I, I thank you for putting so much time into like writing these books and and doing the work that you do, George. Because I know it takes quite um, an emotional toll on people. Mm -hmm. I've now read like eight books on the environment. Started my obsession about mm -hmm. ten weeks ago now, mm -hmm. and and it's been. A struggle some days so yeah, yeah. um yeah heavy, i think it's really impressive it, it's that heavy, you do all but, that you know this is this is the most important topic on earth because yeah. if we don't get this right there's nothing left for us nothing
thank you very much for listening to that episode everyone i hope you enjoyed it who knew that farming and soil would be so complex i certainly didn't but that is the glory of learning about stuff so let me just suggest to you guys take something that you think that you might potentially be interested in learning about and go and learn about it because it'll blow your mind things are incredibly complex and knowing more about these things can only make your life richer i love reading and i think you should love it too there we go I said it. I'm telling you what to do. I think you should love reading. Thank you very much for listening to the show. I'll be back very soon with some more. If you want to support the show, there's loads of stuff in the uh, show notes. That's the word. Show notes. You can check that out. Also, if you want more from George, he's on Instagram, he's on Twitter, and you can find all of that through his website, which is also linked in the description. And I recommend having a read of Regenesis because, honestly, it blew my little brain out. And I think you might enjoy it doing the exact same to you so thanks so much for listening you're all absolute heroes love you goodbye